0: I want to maybe just begin by asking you a question. I want to ask you how much you enjoy change. Uh, I think there are some of us who are like, yeah, we're pretty good with change. Some of us are like, we're creatures of habit. We like things to stay the same. We don't like a lot of change. And change kind of throws us off. But I think we all understand that change is just a reality of, of life, It's a reality of our lives. It's a reality of the world we live in. For example, uh, seasons change, right? Um, I mean, we haven't had much of a winter, but praise the Lord for springtime. Uh, Praise the Lord uh, that we can have uh, some reprieve from this darkness and the coldness I can't take it much longer. I'm ready for some change. Uh, lots of things in life change. Styles change. I have uh, two teenage children and one who's a little bit younger, and uh, and I often love to watch the styles that they embrace that they don't even understand they're embracing. I love that the hairstyles that change, you know, new crazy styles, and they change back to old styles. Clothing styles change. Uh, right now, I'm trying to convince my daughter um, that her she is beginning to wear things that my my wife wore when she was her age, and it's blowing her mind. She's like, this can't be right. My mom wasn't this cool. And I, I'm just like, what are, you, what are you talking about? We, we were that. She was that cool. Maybe not me. Of sports, lots of change there. A players change on teams. Coaches change, hopefully. Uh, teams winning Super Bowls change every once in a while. I hear our taste buds change over time. Maybe you've experienced that in your life. Lots of change in our lives. Change is inevitable. But but what about people? What about people? You ever hear people say, maybe more in their, their youthful years, I just, I'm, I love you so much. Don't ever change. What a horrible thing to say to a 16-year-old. or maybe you've heard accusations in your life or you've thought this about others, you'll never change. Is it really possible for you or for other people to change for the better, for their good? Is it possible for them to become different, to be transformed? No matter your age or your stage of life, change is at the very heart of God's project with you. The very hope of the gospel is that God actually has the power to change us. Amen? It's the thing that we cling to, that we believe in so desperately. But the question is, how does that change happen in our lives? And I think the answer really is a lot of ways. God does a lot of things to produce change in our lives. There are a lot of ways that God does this, but true biblical change begins with a kind of spiritual awakening, a kind of spiritual revival, an awakening in our conscience. Something is provoked within us that forces us to grapple with the reality of who we are. And really, at the end of the day, all true change in the Christian way of looking at this comes from an awakening of our conscience to the guilt of our sin. The Lord God Almighty changes us, but to do that, He has to help us grapple with our guilt. And God, this is the good news for us. God wants to produce change in our lives. He wants you to change. He wants you to have the hope that you do not have to be the same person yesterday that you are today, that you can be a person who is growing and developing and becoming every single day more and more like your Savior, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's the hope that God holds forth to us. We see that God wants to produce change in this story that we're going to look at today together. We're going to dive into really a portion of a very important story, some very important events in the life of a very important family, and that is the family of Joseph. I want to read for you beginning in chapter 42. We're just going to look together today at the first 25 verses. Here's what the Word of God says. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, "'Why do you look at one another?' And he said, "'Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. "'Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die.'" So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. "'Where do you come from?' he said. "'They said, "'From the land of Canaan, to buy food.' And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, "'You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land.' They said to him, "'No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food.' We are all sons of one man. We are all honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said to him, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, "'It is as I said to you, you are spies. "'By this you shall be tested. "'By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place "'unless your youngest brother comes here. "'Send one of you and let him bring your brother "'while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, "'whether this is truth in you. "'Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies.'" And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. They did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them." This, if you don't know, the story of of Joseph and his brothers, is really a story about a family that is broken by sin. But in the process of, of being transformed by God in order for them to ultimately be used by God. You see, God is working out a grand plan in the book of Genesis where he is going to bring redemption to the world. He is looking not just to reconcile this one broken family that is broken by sin. He is ultimately looking to take this one family and reconcile the world back to himself that has been broken by sin. But before God can use these men to help reconcile the world, he needs to first reconcile them. Before they can be used to go out and and change the world in any capacity, they must first be changed and transformed by the grace of God. And this is true for you and I. If you're in Christ today, you are part of the family of God. And what God is looking to do in you is to take you from who you were and transform you into somebody new. New. God wants to take you, a transformed individual, and he wants to then use you in his work of reconciliation. He wants you to be an ambassador of reconciliation in the world. In order for God to do that through you, he needs to first do that in you. So here's the question I want to ask today. How does God do that? The answer is fairly straightforward. It's by bringing about a spiritual awakening in our lives and so let's, let's look at the text by asking this question. Let's dig a little deeper. How does God awaken our conscience and help us grapple with our guilt? First, I want you to see that God will challenge us to confront us. This chapter, again, we're dropping into a, a story and into the life of this family, but this chapter begins with a famine, which actually helps us kind of pull back into the context The story of Joseph began all the way back in chapter 37. Joseph is the son of Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is the son of the favorite wife. Jacob has four, really, wives. And he's the son of the favorite wife, Rachel. He is the favorite son and all his brothers know this. It's become very obvious because their father has given him this multicolored coat that designates him as the son who will receive the inheritance from the father. He is the chosen son. He is the most loved son, chapter 37 tells us. And it also tells us that his brothers are jealous of them of him and they hate him. So much so that if you know this story, and I'm sure most of you do, I mean, they made a Disney movie out of it for crying out loud. They see their brother coming far off. He's coming to check in on them, sent by the father, and they concoct this plan, right? They are going to murder their little brother. They take him and they throw him into this sister and into this pit. And then, better judgment comes to them and instead of murdering him, they decide to sell him into slavery where he's going to be carted off down into Egypt. While in Egypt, God blesses Joseph everywhere he goes because God is present with him. He's favored everywhere he goes. He rises up to prominent positions of power, but eventually he's trapped by his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, and she tries to seduce him. He resists the temptation, but he flees. And as he flees, he leaves his coat behind, and she charges him with wrongdoing. He's unjustly thrown into prison. And while in prison, two of Pharaoh's chiefs who operated in his palace are there, the chief baker and the chief cupbearer. And Joseph is, is enabled by God to interpret their dreams, and the dreams come to pass. One of the men is brought back into his position, but he forgets Joseph. All of a sudden, Pharaoh has this dream really, two dreams, terrifying dreams that nobody else can interpret. And Joseph is then called forward to give an interpretation of the dreams. He does. And he reveals to us and to Pharaoh that the dreams really have one simple meaning, and it's very, very obvious, right? We know the story. That there's gonna be seven years of famine, uh, excuse me, seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And then Joseph says, Pharaoh, you would be wise to select a man of wisdom, somebody who can stockpile and preserve some food and get this nation ready for the famine that's going to come. And here we are right now in the middle of those seven years of of famine. God has been faithful to do everything he had promised to do. It's come to pass. Joseph was that man selected by Pharaoh. He is now second in command over all the land. And now Joseph's brothers come to him. And back in chapter 37, if you recall the story, Joseph actually had two dreams, two dreams in which his brothers came and bowed down before him. Here here are his brothers now bowing down before him. I want you to imagine how bad this situation is. There's a famine that's just kind of wrecked the land. It's so devastating that Jacob, the father of these brothers, says, you need to go and get us food or we're going to die. Now, it's hard for us to fathom this in our context, isn't it? Because we can walk into a grocery store anytime we want and we can get whatever we want. But imagine walking into a superstore or a Sobeys or a Walmart into the grocery aisle and everything is barren. Nothing left. Or imagine pulling up to a, your favorite drive through and going to look at the order menu and it's blank because there's no food to buy. Or, or imagine you, you picked up the phone and you decided to call, skip the dishes, and when you, you pick up, they say, I'm sorry, you're going to have to skip the meal. We don't got any food. And so off they go down into Egypt. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Think about these brothers and think about their past. Going down to Egypt would surely have reminded them of their little brother who they watched being carted off down into Egypt. These little things that begin to provoke their conscience. But I want you to see that this is all happening under the sovereign hand of God. God is providentially bringing all of these plans to pass, and it's amazing. They come and they bow their faces to the ground, the text tells us, fulfilling the dreams of Joseph back in chapter 37. And what we find out here is that God is using Joseph to test these men. Joseph's kind of like a proxy for God. He's like a mediator between God and his brothers. God is going to work through Joseph in order to really begin to reveal the hearts of these men and begin that process of transformation. These 10 brothers needed to be confronted with their guilt. They needed an awakening of the conscience in order to be truly transformed. And for that to happen, they have to come face-to-face, think about this, literally come face-to-face with their past sins. It's no small thing that we're told in verse 9 that Joseph remembered his dreams. They don't recognize him. And why would they? It's, it's been 20-plus years. Joseph was 17 years old. Think about that when he was sold by his brothers into slavery. He spent 13 of those years as either a slave or a prisoner. He's gone through seven years of plenty, and now we're into the seven years of famine. It is 20-plus years. He's not the 17-year-old brother they once knew. He's a 37-year-old man who is now second in command over all of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the planet. It's amazing how life circumstances can change. Joseph was unrecognizable. You say, well, how is it possible they didn't recognize him? Again, 20-plus years. But I want you to think, these are some Hebrew men, and they're coming, and they're standing before the second in charge of Egypt. And you just think about it, he's kind of been assimilated into the Egyptian culture. He, He walks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. They think he is an Egyptian. He's even using here an interpreter to kind of conceal his identity from them. Why? Why is he doing all of this? Because believe me, Joseph is beginning to think about a plan. He is going to test his brothers. This confrontation is intended to reveal the true character of these men. Who are they? Who have they become Has their conscience been awakened? Have they truly grappled with their guilt? Have they dealt with their past sins in an appropriate way? You see, God is deeply interested in who you are and in who you are becoming. And our lives are are not, as some people may believe, a series of random events intended to confuse us Our lives are a series of providentially ordained circumstances intended to change us. And sometimes what we see here is that God will even bring an external worldwide famine to expedite our internal personal transformation. God will move heaven and earth, God will turn our world upside down in order to get our attention and in order to do a radical renovation, a personal transformation in our lives. What circumstances are you facing today? What challenges do you find yourself kind of bucking up against today? Maybe your life has been filled with them. Maybe your life has been filled with difficulty and hardship. You've been going through your own kinds of famines. You've been in the wilderness, so to speak, maybe for years. Maybe you've found yourself on the mountaintop and in the valley. How are you viewing the circumstances of your life the challenges that you are facing is it possible that the challenges that you are facing today have been designed by god to confront something in you to address something in you that god wants to change and adjust maybe something in you that god wants to reveal that you're even unaware of today You see, we can view the challenges we face as either human obstacles that we simply need to get past or as divinely ordained opportunities to help us deal with our past, that God wants to grow us and change us and turn us into somebody new Maybe instead of asking God simply to take away the trials in your life, which I'm not opposed to, by the way, I think that's fair game to pray, God, God, please, please remove this from me. Even Jesus prayed that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Lord, Lord, would you remove this cup from me, yet not my will be done, but yours. I would encourage you to pray those very same things as you encounter trials in your life. God, God, take it away, but God, not my will be done, your will be done. And maybe, maybe just like in the life of Jesus, God, God is trying to do something in you so he can do something through you. Secondly, God will confront us to convict us. These challenges lead us to directly confront some things within us, but the confrontation itself is intended to provoke us, to bring about conviction in our hearts. It's interesting that the, the word of God tells us that Joseph recognizes his brothers immediately, but they don't recognize him. And immediately, Joseph begins to concoct this plan. He sets this plan in motion, and it's going to last a few chapters, and it's going to span probably months, maybe even years. He's going to work out this amazing plan in their lives. Really, it's God working it out. Here's what we see. First, he he begins to treat them roughly. This is all part of the the ruse. You know, he he looks at them and he he accuses them of being spies. You guys are just spies. You're here to to spy out the nakedness of the land. We know, listen, we know you guys are in trouble, and we know that you've simply come here to try to create this spy ring, and you're going to try to rob us and steal what's rightfully ours. You guys are up to no good. That's what he's telling them. I mean it does probably look a little bit suspicious, right? Remember, these aren't young men. This looks like a mafia gang, some kind of Hebrew mafia gang, right? They've, they've been beat down and weathered by the famine, but they're all over the age of 37. Every one of these guys is over, over the, older than Joseph, their brother. And so you tell me what you would think if 10 grown men are coming into your presence, they kind of look a little bit haggard. But really, this is a part of his plan. He's he's trying to trap them in one sense. So he says, you're spies. And they they say to him, "Uh, we're not spies. But I want you to pay attention to what he's trying to do and what he's trying to confront in their lives. He confronts them in a way that calls their character into question. Did you catch that? You know what he's saying to them? You are not who you say you are. Let that sit for a minute. You guys are not who you say you are. You are not men of character. You're not men of integrity. And look at how they respond in verse 11. This is really important. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Oh, you're honest men, are you? Just put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. You're honest about not being spies, and Joseph, he knows this. But there's a deeper purpose with this confrontation. Have you been honest with who you truly are? Have you been honest about your past sins? Have you been honest about the things you've done? Have you been honest about the guilt that should weigh heavily upon you? Have you truly grappled with your guilt in verse 12, again, he's, he's kind of playing this story out. No, you're spot. You're just here to see the nakedness of the land. It's quite an elaborate plan that Joseph is unfolding. Joseph is a shrewd man. He's wise. I mean, he was wise enough to be appointed second in command of all of Egypt. He was wise enough to come up with this plan by the grace of God And the wisdom of God to help protect the people of Egypt and really to help save the entire world in the midst of this famine. Surely he is shrewd enough, wise enough, smart enough to draw out the hearts of his brothers. Verse 13 And they said, we your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father. And then catch this, I wonder how this must have felt for Joseph. And one is no more. That's that's one way of putting it, isn't it? One brother is no more. But it also seems like a a kind of way of avoiding the reality of what actually happened, of what they actually did. It's a kind of ambiguous or vague way of explaining away the reality that they tried to murder their brother, but instead graciously sold him into slavery. Now, I understand they don't want to implicate themselves in the presence of Joseph. They are standing before the ruler of the nation who's accusing them of spies. The last thing they want to do is reveal the fact that they were actually plotting a murder but actually are slave traders. (laughs) But, But isn't it true that instead of dealing with the guilt of our sin, we'll often avoid calling our sin, sin, We have ways of making it very vague and ambiguous in an attempt to kind of smooth it over or relieve some of the conviction or the guilt that we often feel. You know that famous Orwellian phrase, mistakes were made. We have these sneaky ways of disguising our sin instead of truly dealing with our sin. We call it things like a failure or a flaw or a mistake. We say things like, well, no one's perfect. Everyone does it. We all struggle. And all of that, of course, is true. But a rose by any other name still arose. Why do we do this, though? Why do we, why do we try to kind of cover or smooth over our sin? Here's why. Let me tell you. Because calling sin, sin makes it real and forces us to confront it for what it actually is. We don't like that because we like to do everything we can in our flesh to avoid feeling conviction. We do not like feeling the sense of being guilty, do we? I mean, none of us enjoy it. I hope you don't enjoy that. The sense of feeling guilty, of feeling the shame of your sin, the weight of conviction. It's an incredibly unbearable feeling to to let sit upon you. And so we try to move it off any way we can. And then in verse 14 and 15, Joseph says to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. Now, if you circle things in your Bible, that is a key word here. It's going to be used in verse 16 as well. You see what God is doing through Joseph. He is testing his brothers. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, he swears by Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. And, and again, what we see here is so fascinating. He's trying to test his brothers to see what kind of people they are. This word for test is the same word used in Jeremiah 6, where it says, I have made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. It's the same word in Psalm 66, verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried and he's trying to put this in your mind the lord is the spirit of god he wants you to think about how someone would test metal to see its authenticity and its purity that's what he's doing here and the test is so simple go and get your brother go and get this younger brother now remember this is joseph's purest brother it is his only other brother from the same father same mother and there's certainly a longing in his heart to see his younger brother, Benjamin, but again, there's more at work here. There is a deeper test. Are you the same men who threw me into a pit and sold me into slavery, or have you become somebody different? Joseph is sifting their worth. He's sifting their character, and what he does is he takes them, and he, and he, he puts them in a prison, in a pit which is ironic and intentional because that's exactly what they did to him. And this is not vindictive. I don't believe. Some commentators think, oh, God, he's just being vindictive. He's trying to, you know, pay them back for what they did. I don't think that's the motivation of his heart. I think he is trying to give them a parallel experience to his own in order for them to consider their sin, to provoke their conscience so that they can truly deal with what they've actually done brilliant. So for three days, he puts them in this prison, in this pit, so to speak, and he's asking this question, is your conscience awakened yet? Is your conscience awakened yet? As they sit there and think about what they've done and they think about their future, perhaps their mind went right back to their brother who sat in a pit with his future hanging by a thread And the use of irony in this passage is remarkable, and again, it's intended to just kind of provoke the conscience. I want you to think about all the ironic elements of this story and compare them to the story of what his brothers did to him. Right now, in this moment, the ones who oppressed are now oppressed the ones who threw their brother in a prison are now imprisoned the ones who deceived are now being deceived they are not spies but joseph is spying out the truth of whether or not they had truly grappled with their guilt all of this intended to bring about a conviction in their hearts you know spiritual awakenings they've always begun with an awakening of the conscience and you can, you can trace this throughout history, whether or not it is a, a, you know, one of the two great awakenings, as they're often called in the, the history of the church, or whether it's personal awakenings, personal revivals in the lives of individual believers, one of the things we constantly see is that they always begin with an awakening of the conscience, with a, a newfound understanding of sin, of conviction that they didn't feel before. There are stories of people in the, the Great Awakenings who experienced this unbelievable weight of conviction for their sins. And many of them, by the way, there are testimonies of people who, who are, were not, you know, pagans living up in, a, in sin in the world. Many of the testimonies actually come from people like you and me who attended church their whole lives. They sat in churches. They listened to good preaching. They memorized the scriptures. They memorized catechisms, right? They were there every single Sunday. On the outside, they looked really, really good. They looked put together. They looked like they loved God. But inwardly, they were full of dead man's bones. But all of a sudden... In these moments of revival, in these great awakenings, the Spirit of God descends upon their hearts and opens their eyes to the reality of their sin before God, exposing the hardness of their heart, their unbelief, all of the little pharisaical, hypocritical ways in which they had been living, and the weight of that just becomes unbearable to the point of breaking their hearts wide open before the Lord. There's almost always... The beginning of true transformation. The book of Romans, Paul talks about the function of the conscience in the life of a human being. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, the Bible says that God gives you a conscience, and your conscience is actually designed to do one of two things. It's either going to accuse you of wrongdoing accuse you of being in rebellion against God, accuse you of being in sin and transgression, or or your conscience is going to be seared because of repeated patterns of sin in your life to the point where you then begin to excuse sin in your life. So it either functions to accuse you of sin or a broken conscience excuses your sin. And so the key, if you have a broken conscience where you've been able to live in sin and think that your sin's not that big of a deal, that, you know, you you can call your sin something else to kind of allow you to get away from the conviction you're supposed to feel, the key to spiritual awakening is to pray, listen, to pray that God makes your conscience sensitive to the reality of what sin truly is and who sin is truly against. It's against the only true and living God the holy creator of heaven and earth. And if you don't confront your sin, you will conform to your sin. And this is what God does with us. Out of love for us, God brings us face to face with our sin in order to produce conviction. Now, conviction, hear this, not condemnation, okay? Okay. There's the world of difference between conviction and condemnation. You want to know who comes to bring condemnation to your soul? Satan. Satan comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And and especially if you're a believer here today, listen, we all struggle with sin. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But listen, if you live under condemnation, I need you to hear this. That is the work of Satan, not the work of the Spirit of God in your life. Satan wants you to feel that you are unforgivable. Satan wants you to believe that you will never be able, you will never be changed. Satan wants you to believe that you're beyond the grace of God, but the Spirit of God, the Word of God tells us, comes to convict the world. World of sin and of righteousness and of judgment amen? amen the spirit of God comes to work in your heart so that you know that your sin is real your sin is against a holy God and that God is righteous and what you need to be in the presence of God is perfect righteousness that you cannot earn on your own but has come for you in the person of Jesus Christ and the spirit of god wants to convict the world including you of judgment that all sin deserves to be judged it one day will be judged by god in a future judgment to come or or it will be judged in the person of jesus christ who stands in your place we need conviction of our sin the question left here is what will you do with your guilt with the conviction you feel will you numb it like we so often do with other sin (laughs) is not that funny how we do that we feel conviction of sin and instead of dealing with it god's way what do we do we run to other sin to help us make us feel better about the sin we're trying to avoid dealing with will you ignore it will you excuse it or will you deal with it the way god calls you to you see when god awakens your conscience he wants to help us grapple with our guilt In the right way, because God has our good and his glory in mind. And lastly, what we see is that God will convict us to change us. You cannot be truly changed by God unless you wrestle with the conviction brought by God. And verse 18, notice this, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live Listen, this is true for their physical life. If they they pass the test, if they go get their brother, they're going to live. But again, there's a deeper spiritual reality at work here. If they really deal with their sin, guess what? They will live and not die. They will find the true source of life and joy and satisfaction. Sin that is excused or ignored always leads us into a kind of death a kind of destruction. And you can think of death like this in the spiritual sense. Death is alienation or distance from the presence of God. The further and further we get away from God, the more and more the kind of spiritual death we encounter and we experience in our lives. When we truly grapple with our guilt and we deal with it God's way, when we do what he tells us to do, it leads us to life. It leads us to joy. And I want you to notice what he says here. This is Joseph. Remember, he appears to be an Egyptian, but he makes this staggering statement to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. He is in effect saying, I I am not worshiping the gods of Egypt. I am a worshiper of the one true and living God. I am the worshiper of the God who gives life. And the implication here, I want you to hear this. The implication is I fear God, do you? Do you? See, the reason they've been able to live for so long without dealing with their sin is because they do not properly fear God. They do not love God. They do not stand in awe of God. There is no reverence for God in their lives. They do not understand or value the holiness and the righteousness of God and the glory of God. They do not rightly see the one they have sinned against and the one they will one day stand before. But now the fear of God is falling upon them, awakening their conscience and helping them for the first time maybe grapple with their guilt. And the heart of this passage reveals their guilt and their dishonest past. Look at it again, verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, here's honesty. Here's the honesty. Here's the honesty that God was looking for in their hearts. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. You see what they did? They saw their circumstances and they saw the accusations of being spies as God really trying to reveal something more, something deeper. You go on to say, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They have lived for 20 years with the memory of their brother, pleading for his life. In chapter 37, we're given no indication of anything that Joseph says. There's kind of silence over the whole situation as Joseph is in the pit. But for the first time here, 20 plus years later, the brothers are reliving the experience. And do you want to know what gnaws at their conscience? It was their little brother who was pleading for the life for his life after he was thrown by them into a pit. Isn't it amazing the way sin can often work in our own lives? We can try to ignore things for years, but in the moments of quietness and reflection, isn't it true that sometimes the sins of our past just tend to gnaw at our conscience? The stuff of our nightmares, the things we're ashamed of and embarrassed for people to know about us. And here the brothers you can hear. There was a day, think about this, there was a day 20 years ago where their little brother was in a pit and he was there pleading for his life. Guys, what are you doing? Don't do this don't do this to me. I'm your brother. Please, please, please don't. You're you're, going to kill me? You're going to make me a slave for the rest of my life? How could you do this? And they sat and they ate and they ignored. But now it comes right back to the surface. never really been at peace with what they did, perhaps trying to assuage their conscience, but now, right now in this moment, their eyes are being opened, their hearts are being softened, the conviction that they're experiencing is so real, so deep, they admit their guilt, and they see that God has been watching all along. What will they do now that they see their sin? What will you do when you see your sin? Are you honestly grappling with your guilt, with your, your sin? Let me just hit this as we kind of wrap up our time together in three ways. Maybe it's your sins of the past. Maybe for some of you in here today, you've, you've, you've never really dealt with the sins of your past. Maybe it's been years that's been sitting heavy upon your soul and you've never truly gone back and made things right both with the Lord or those you've sinned against. You've tried to bury it but it just is eating away at you and you can't figure out why you've not been able to make spiritual progress and maybe today the Spirit of God is saying to you, that's because I want you to deal with something in your past you've never dealt with, you've never made right. Maybe for some of you it's sins in the present moment. And again, we all have sins and there's a ton of grace. I want you to see that there's so much grace. There's so much hope to change, but you cannot change if you're unwilling to look at your sins in the face and deal with them the way God calls you to deal with them. Maybe for some of you in here today, right now you're living a double life and you're the only one in the room that knows it. You've been living a complete double life. You present yourself, you walk in these doors at church, maybe even into a small group, and you have this kind of face you put on. You know, you know, we call these the sanctification doors, right? You walk in, it's like everything's great, but meanwhile you're living a life of sin and hypocrisy. And if the people around you knew, they would be shocked. And God is saying to you today, no more, no more. You don't have to live there anymore. I can change you, I can heal you, I can transform you. Maybe for some of you it's future. You're thinking about a sin today. You're looking down the road, you're not happy with your life and you're thinking about making some pretty drastic changes, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your lifestyle and you're about to walk into willful, grievous sin and the Lord is trying to say to you, don't do it. That is the path of death. Follow me, and I will lead you on paths of righteousness for my name's sake. All of us are a sinner in need of a Savior. 1 John 1.7 says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And here's the hope I want to offer you today. You don't have to walk in sin. You don't have to walk in darkness. You don't have to live today with the sting of a conscience. You can be awakened and you can be converted. You can enjoy the forgiveness and cleanness that comes only through Jesus Christ. You don't have to live in condemnation and you don't have to live under guilt and shame because Jesus Christ has come. As Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. If you're an unbeliever here today, and you are feeling the weight of your sin, there is hope. The God of this world has entered into humanity He has robed himself with humanity. He has suffered and died for you. He took the full payment for your sin on the cross. And then he rose from the grave three days later, victorious over death. And he is reigning on high. He lives now and forevermore. And if you believe in him, you can march straight out of death today and right into the life of Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer here today and you have been living in some kind of sin that is not dealt with, if you've been wondering why you're stuck and logjammed in the spiritual life, there's hope for you today. You too can look to your Savior, Jesus Christ, and be reminded that he bled and died for you. He bore your guilt and he took your shame so that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen? Let us pray. Father, we thank you We thank you for the gift of grace. We thank you for the way you both awaken our consciences, the way you bring conviction, but God, we praise you for the way you bring healing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we pray right now, all of us, Lord, for a greater spiritual awakening in our lives. Would you allow our consciences to be sensitive to our sin? And would you thrill our hearts with the goodness of your grace? May we rejoice together in the forgiveness and freedom that is found in the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.